welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Trinitha, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, The Challenges of Coping with Cancer and Other Health Problems. And I have to say, this is the first time we've offered this particular topic on one of our teleconference programs. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of our collaboration, and, and I think because of the topic that we have so many of you on the call today. We have on the call today over 1,200 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call. This is a very large uh, conference call, and I have to say that you come from all over the United States, from all different areas and regions. And we also have international participants from Africa, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, India, Jamaica, Korea, Malaysia, Nigeria, Syria, Tanzania, Venezuela, and the United Kingdom. So really from all over the world, and it's really a credit to all of you um, as a group of information seekers, um, and you also are global. It's a global call, really, from all over the world. Now, this program today was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Novartis Oncology, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. I would like to turn your attention for a moment to all those materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials is an outline of what our speakers will be covering, and there's information about all of the different collaborating organizations as a resource for each of you, as additional resources to each of you. And there also is an evaluation form, and I ask you each to take a moment and complete that evaluation form. We so much rely on your feedback in terms of selecting topics as we move forward. Um, who but each of you could be our best informants of what we should be doing uh, moving forward. So um, please tell us what you'd like us to do, and we'll, we'll try very hard to do it. Indeed, this topic was one that some of you had written in your evaluations that you'd like us to offer, and so here it is. And so we try to be responsive to your, to your requests. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker. Uh, our first speaker is Dr. Lowell Anthony, and Dr. Anthony is Professor of Medicine, Section of Hematology and Oncology, Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center. And Dr. Anthony is going to address the impact of chronic illness on cancer treatment options and the role of clinical trials. It is my pleasure to, to turn the program over to Dr. Anthony. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's a real pleasure to be addressing everyone today. And this topic is one of keen interest uh, to everyone involved in cancer care, uh, from the physician to the nursing staff to uh, the patient, the patient's family, because what the patient brings to the table has to be considered uh, in the overall decisions in cancer treatment. And when I say this, there are certain conditions that coexist with certain diseases, uh, one of which we come to expect with people with head and neck and, and lung cancer uh, would be COPD. Uh, with uh, obstructive lung disease, there may be some uh, need for additional uh, medications uh, and treatment to address uh, the underlying disease. Uh, with uh, cirrhosis, we think of liver cancer. Uh, we really don't treat that disease in the context of, of uh, 
of cirrhosis on the on the medical side. If if there's not cirrhosis, then it becomes more surgical and it's uh, a bit un, more unusual. So. The preparation for cancer treatment then would be an assessment of not only these diseases that we would correlate with certain malignancies, but also thinking about chronic medical illnesses like diabetes and hypertension and osteoarthritis because these conditions will certainly play an important role in considering uh, what the impact of cancer therapy may have uh, on the individual, not only because of some of the complications of this disease, but some of the drugs that are used in managing it may also uh, be contraindicated or minimized uh, during cancer care. And I'll say one of the conditions would be the, like the use of aspirin products or, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents like uh, ibuprofen. Uh, these agents would lower uh, the, the would impact people who may have lower platelet counts because of cancer care. So if we block uh, the platelet function with these agents, such as aspirin and ibuprofen, and the, and the platelet count is already low, then it's going to increase the chances for complications uh, of treatment, such as bleeding, bruising, uh, etc. So uh, the uh, initial assessment will be part of that in terms of, of establishing what the condition of the, of the person may be. There may be some quantitation involved in this, such as pulmonary function tests, uh, such as uh, echocardiogram or uh, specific uh, functions of, of heart to determine what the baseline is prior to any treatment. Another area of diseases that we not normal, maybe not normally think of, uh, but that might be periodontal disease. And this would be for people that we would be treating for leukemia uh, that will be undergoing uh, ablation of the bone marrow with induction chemotherapy. Uh, the mouth becomes uh, a primary source of complications uh, of treatment. So uh, having a dental ass uh, assessment of teeth and gums and the correction of any uh, tooth problems uh, need to be done uh, prior to the initiation uh, of cancer treatment. So obviously when we talk about this topic, we're talking about many diseases uh, that people can have, and then on top of that, we're putting malignancy, and on top of that, we're adding in uh, therapy that's going to impact the host. Um, <clears throat> that impacting the host, we normally prepare people to, uh, in, with certain regimens, there may be a change of appearance, there may be hair loss. Um, these things are more cosmetic. Things that we are uh, really keen about is to control uh, nausea and vomiting to make that uh, have a minimal impact on, on uh, uh, quality of life. And also to be thinking about bone marrow protection so that some regimens that may have a high incidence of bone marrow suppression, we may be thinking and talking to patients at the time of initiation of cancer treatment that additional supportive medicines uh, may be indicated and used to minimize or decrease the chances of having uh, a systemic infection. The uh, impact of chronic illness on cancer therapy uh, certainly can influence the options because the rule of thumb in cancer treatment uh, is to make the patient fit the treatment, not the treatment to the patient, so that when someone has impaired kidney function or impaired liver function, heart function, uh, lung function, our goal is to 
uh, design therapy that that patient can tolerate. Uh, so <clears throat> this assessment uh, that would include essentially every organ of the body uh, is critical in determining what uh, treatments can be used safely and uh, effectively. And when we say effectively, sometimes just a dose reduction uh, would be needed. Now, the uh, other part of what I want to address today is the role of clinical trials. In order to advance medical care in any specialty, we have to push back the barriers uh, that exist in uh, treating diseases in which we're not completely successful. Uh, that mechanism that we refer to as clinical trials helps us accomplish uh, this, this uh, goal. This is the tool we use. Uh, we think of clinical trials as, uh, in terms of numbers, uh, phase zero, uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, and these encompass most of the clinical trials that we talk about, even though phase five clinical trials also exist. But when we think about drugs, uh, <clears throat> that have undergone preclinical testing. A target has been identified that's present in certain cancers, and the agent uh, mechanism is directed towards that target. Then a goal of a phase zero trial might be to uh, look at exploratory human uh, uh, concerns, such as looking at how a drug may be cleared, looking at pharmacokinetics. Uh, this would be considered a first-in-human type trial. Uh, this would be where maybe assays need to be developed to uh, test the drug or measure the drug in, in the urine or, or, or blood. Uh, and this would come before a phase one trial in which the main goal is to determine the maximal tolerated dose so that additional trials can be uh, undertaken at the phase two, phase three level in which the uh, most effective dose and, most, and best tolerated dose is, is uh, identified. So when we talk about phase one trials, we're talking about identifying dose as it relates to toxicity. From preclinical work, we can identify for most agents what those toxicities may be so that we can start at a certain dose level uh, and then move up uh, in that scheme to where uh, we're successful in identifying the dose-limiting toxicity and then move into phase two trials. When we talk about phase two trials, now we're fairly confident about the dose. There may be still some dosing issues, but it's not like we're all over uh, the, the gamut with dosing. So we may settle in on one or two doses and then establish which diseases uh, this dose may be effective in. So phase two trials can be disease-specific, whereas phase one trials would be anyone generally with an adequate performance status. And I'll say performance status, this would indicate someone's ability to function so that we rate or rank people as it relates to how independent they are and what their ability to perform self-care uh, is. So as we move into phase two trials, the answer there that we might get in maybe a dozen to maybe 40 and sometimes larger numbers of patients would be to determine the response rate. And the response rate uh, can be looked at from radiographic perspectives. It might be looked at the time that the tumor may progress. Uh, there may be biomarkers that are being part of that assessment. So, there, so the response rates can be defined in multiple ways. But once it's agreed upon at the beginning of the trial, then there's really no change during that trial, uh, or if there needs to be a change in the trial, would potentially be rewritten and started over again. So when a disease 
is indicated as being uh, susceptible to such a, a mechanism of treatment, then we would move into a phase three trial. And what I want you to remember about a phase three trial is this is where we're comparing a new form of treatment to what we would consider the standard of care. So that anybody that enters a phase three trial is going to get at least the standard of care. This is generally the concept of, of one of the ways that uh, we can get more confident of benefit in a much larger uh, number of subjects. So this might be where hundreds of people may be randomized between different arms of therapy, and frequently there might be two and sometimes three and sometimes four uh, arms of, of options that people are randomly assigned in. Some clinical trials uh, may be blinded where the practitioner uh, and the patient, all, all people concerned with direct patient care, are, are, un, are unaware of exactly what that person uh, is receiving. So what we're really looking at here is developing evidence-based medicine so that we can uh, give confidence to prescribers on if they use this agent, what the expected outcomes would be, and that's also no more important than to insurers who are asked to pay uh, for these kinds of therapies. So we all want to practice evidence-based therapy. Uh, we do realize there's limitations in evidence-based therapy. Agents, as they're approved, have very specific indications, and we know from being in this uh, area for many years that uh, certain agents, just because they don't have the indication, may still be active. If there's enough evidence in the literature, even besides a Phase three trial, if there's a Phase two or such, sometimes we will prescribe an agent on less than than the uh, phase three uh, data would, would, that's, that's not available. So I've given you an overview on how the physician is, you might say, uh, assessing the, the patient, how they're communicating to the patient, and then how we're attempting to advance medical care. So that concludes my remarks. Carolyn, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Anthony, for just a very informative and incredibly understandable presentation on very complex topics. I always appreciate your making the complex so understandable, so I thank you very much. And I know there will be many questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Jamie Von Rohn, and Dr. Von Rohn is Professor of Medicine, Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also Medical Director, Home Hospice Program, Northwestern Memorial Hospital, member, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center at Northwestern University. And Dr. Von Rohn is going to address the importance of adherence, taking your pills on schedule, reducing harmful drug interactions, and quality of life concerns. So I now turn this program over to Dr. Von Rohn. Thank you. So adherence is the place that we're going to start, and what that really is is what it sounds like. Can you stick with the treatment? And that's the ability to take your medicines as prescribed, to take the right dose on the right schedule, not to skip doses, not to take extra doses. If one is good, two is not better. And to continue the treatment over the long haul, which is probably the hardest part. Now we're often asking people to take drugs over many years on a daily basis. But patients have told us that they prefer oral treatment, and in fact, there are more and more oral medications available for the treatment of cancer. In fact, about 25% of all of the new cancer drugs in development are oral drugs at this time. And this is of great benefit because it asks 
people to come to the doctor's office less frequently. It interferes much less with your personal schedule. It's less time away from work and from home. And it has the potential to give people a sense of greater control over their therapy and their health in general. In multiple studies, we've seen that patients with cancer are highly motivated to comply with the therapy, that is to follow through on whatever's been advised. And in the setting of clinical trials, the likelihood of adhering, that is sticking with the treatment with oral medications, is extremely high. But unfortunately, in the real world, it's not quite as good. You may be familiar with the drug tamoxifen, which is one of the oldest oral anti-cancer drugs. It's a drug that treats hormonally responsive breast cancer and is used both for treatment and prevention. We know that if you take tamoxifen, five years of therapy is better than three years, three years is better than one year, and one year is better than none. If you look in clinical trials, the likelihood of continuing on the tamoxifen for the full five years is good, but not great. It's in the 70-plus percent range. However, if you look at pharmacy data, that is, how often did people prescribe tamoxifen come and refill their prescription on time, suggesting they took the drug, it's only close to 60 percent at three and a half years, and it continues to fall as time goes on. For drugs that have the potential for more side effects, like Gleevec or Amatinib that's used to treat chronic myelogenous leukemia, the data is even more worrisome. In the clinical trial setting, at less than two years, about 19 months, more than 90% of patients are taking their drugs every day on schedule. But in the real-world picture, it's only about 40% at the same time. And that's a huge concern since, of course, with, if you don't take the drug, you don't get the benefit. If one looks over time, and there's the most data for imatinib, from four months to 14 months in real-world pharmacy records, the fall-off is from 100% of people taking it at day one to only about a quarter of the patients taking it out a little over one year. So this change in the use of the drug has a huge impact on response, and in the setting of chronic myelogenous leukemia, the likelihood of response in that group fell from 90% to a major response rate of only 60% if one looks at the group overall. So not taking the drugs, of course, decreases our ability to provide good health outcomes. It's estimated, in fact, in some series that only about a third of patients with cancer actually take all of their anti-cancer drugs as prescribed. And interestingly, this is true not only for cancer drugs, but also for things like symptom management. There is a study that looked at the likelihood of patients with cancer-related pain taking their pain medications, specifically opioid pain medicines, drugs like morphine, and up to 75% of the patients didn't take all of their medicine in spite of continued pain. So we have a lot to do in terms of figuring out why and how to help people so that they can maintain their best outcomes by taking their drugs. So why does this happen? Well, for one thing, if you've ever taken an antibiotic and had a three times a day dosing, it's really hard to remember in the midst of a busy day to take that middle-of-the-day dose. There's also the fear of side effects. For opioids, that's a major problem, people being afraid 
either that they'll get terrible constipation or sleepiness or get addicted. With chemotherapy, people are afraid of nausea and vomiting and other adverse or worrisome side effects. There's also treatment fatigue. Here we are asking people to take drugs for years, and as people feel better, they feel like, well, why do I need to do this? I'm fine. And they may choose either to skip doses or to take fewer, not recognizing that it's the long-term um, management that's essential for maintaining their quality of life. There's also a concern with cost. Many of these new targeted therapies that Dr. Anthony talked about are also very expensive drugs, and even if people have good insurance, the copay may be prohibitive, and it's important to talk to your healthcare professionals about that issue because there are services that help access um, those drugs outside of insurance sometimes. Polypharmacy is another problem. That means people taking multiple drugs, and it may be for other illnesses, as Dr. Anthony mentioned, or it may be just complicated treatment combinations for cancer. So, for example, for breast cancer, there are combinations like lapatinib and capecitabine, which is Tycar and Zolota, where lapatinib needs to be taken on an empty stomach every day, but capecitabine needs to be taken after food. So all of a sudden you have drugs before meals, drugs after meals, multiple times a day, and it gets to be a very difficult schedule to keep up with. Sometimes cancer or other uh, illnesses, dementia, for example, may interfere with people's ability to remember. And so just that memory problem may interfere with your ability to take your drugs. And unfortunately, a common problem that communication, as will be discussed by Dr. Given, can make a big difference is just trusting your healthcare professionals and being comfortable asking for clarification of directions, since often drugs are taken incorrectly just because the directions were not very clear. Additionally, it's essential that we as healthcare professionals provide very clear information about the pros and cons of taking the drug so that you feel committed in a way that will keep you taking them because you understand what you get for putting in that effort. The results of not taking the drugs as prescribed really is a missed opportunity for getting better, and there are multiple studies that show that it leads to more doctor visits, more hospital admissions, and longer hospital stays. So it's not just that the cancer is inadequately treatment, but other, treated, but other outcomes are affected as well. So what's been shown to help? Well, the obvious is discussion, communication. Education about side effects and what we're going to do about them helps. If you're worried about side effects and you talk about it, just knowing that there are things that can be done to treat and or prevent those side effects makes it a little easier to take the medications. And it's important to recognize that earlier discussion of side effects, that is, as soon as you get a side effect, the sooner you talk about it with your healthcare professional, the better, because intervening earlier, that is, treating a side effect sooner, results in better control. It's also how available your healthcare professionals are. Do you know who to call and when you can call and how to get them so that you call them early enough? It's education about the benefits of treatment and ideally simplifying the therapy that you're getting, talking through all of the medicines that you take for all of your different medical illnesses and symptoms and figuring out what can be eliminated and what can and can't be taken together. 
It's also important to tell your healthcare team about any complementary or alternative therapies that you're using. We know that in spite of the fact that more than 50% of patients take alternative and complementary therapies, at least half never tell their healthcare professionals about it. And this is important because some of these herbs and supplements actually change the way the body handles chemotherapy. So, for example, the best example is St. John's wort, which is sometimes taken for depression or anxiety, and it changes the rate that many drugs are cleared from the system. For example, the imatinib we talked about before, it's cleared more quickly, and therefore you don't get the same benefit from the drug if you don't increase the dose or stop the St. John's wort. Many of the oral cancer chemo, many of the oral cancer treatments are affected by whether you take them with food or not. So if no one tells you about that, ask. Similarly, things as innocuous as grapefruit juice can interfere with the way drugs are handled, and it's important to ask your healthcare professional or a pharmacist what other drugs or supplements or foods to be aware of when you take that medicine. So what can you do? You can ask questions and clarify the purpose, the dose, and the schedule of your medicine. You can tell the healthcare provider everything that you're taking, and there are practical things you can do. Pill containers that separate what pills you take, what time of day that you fill either daily or weekly. There are now um, all sorts of electronic devices. People now use their cell phones as reminders, and there are now electronic wireless pill bottles that will send you a text or an email or play a tune or activate a light to give you a clue. You can also find life clues that you can use. I often tell people that who are on a medicine every morning and they tell me they forget it, well, put it with your toothbrush. I bet you never leave your house without brushing your teeth. Or put up a calendar or ask your loved ones to remind you. Clearly, to get good results, you have to take the medicines, and the medicines need to be tailored to you and the way your lifestyle allows them to fit in. Perhaps that's a good place to start, Carolyn, and we can stop and we can go on. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Von Rowan, for, again, very um, very outstanding and very comprehensive presentation and, and really helping people to understand the drug interactions and, and really um, issues around it, taking pills on schedule and how important that is. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Dr. Barbara Gibbon. Dr. Gibbon is University Distinguished Professor, Associate Dean for Research and Doctoral Program, College of Nursing, Michigan State University. Dr. Gibbon is going to address communicating with your healthcare team and creating the right care plan for you. Dr. Gibbon? Thank you. It's a delight to be here. So my topic is communicating with the team and talking about the plan of care. And I will start with the communication with the healthcare team. In my view and my experiences, we have to be partners in care as we deal with the cancer diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. So it's very important, as uh, has already been mentioned, that we have to trust each other, meaning that we have to trust the uh, healthcare professionals who are taking care of us, but they have to be able to trust us that we are giving full information and accurate information. The example that was just given a little bit ago was uh, over-the-counter drugs and if one is taking complementary therapy. So understanding each other then uh, is key to the very best plan of care that one can have. 
So as a patient or family caregiver who is involved, it means that as you deal with the team, you need to be sure that you ask the questions and express what you really want to know. They shouldn't be having to guess what it is that uh, you want to know. We should feel free to express our concerns or our reservations or our feelings uh, if things are not right and not try to hold those back. And most important, that's already been said several times today, is that we have to know when and what to report early on the side effects and the uh, negative effects that we have in relation to the treatment and the disease so that action can be taken uh, early and they can be managed. And for all the complicated protocols that you've been hearing about, it is really un important that because so much of it now is the oral medications or at least drugs to complement uh, what is done with uh, radiation and chemotherapy, we need to understand the clear direction, time of day, standing up, lying down, medications, foods, and other things to take. So how to be, be at your best with the time that you have as you talk with your uh, healthcare team, I think there are key uh, things that are identified to be prepared and organized. So think through or uh, rehearse on your way as you're waiting in the waiting room. Rehearse what it is you want to talk about. We recommend to our patients that they write out what they want to discuss and they prioritize how they want to talk about it so that they're sure that they cover what is most important to them. And a lot of times um, we want to not say our worst thing first, but we want to talk about the other things that are happening and save the most troubling things. So we have to be careful that our message is concise and that we don't ramble and that we don't hide the message in a lot of conversation. So if you're wor working and talking with a healthcare team and you want to know whether things should really be better, if you leave every time and you have unanswered questions, if you feel rushed to state what it is that you want to talk about, if you find that you persistently are unable to reach them to get your question answered, or that the question isn't answered, or that the professional is standing in the door as you're asking the question, then probably that isn't the team member that you want to talk to to ask your most important questions. And so we recommend uh, that uh, people think about who it is on the healthcare team that it, they can talk most freely to. Sometimes it is not the main uh, physician. It might be a fellow, it might be a resident, or it might be the nurse on the team, or it might be another physician who can help interpret, but someone who you know listens and who you feel that you can talk to. And it is not okay to say, well, he's really an excellent physician and he's really, really bright, but they can't communicate because this is your plan of care and this is your diagnosis and this is your disease. So you have to be able to communicate to understand what's happening. So if you find yourself saying that or you find yourself with these unanswered questions or inability to reach someone, it may be time to find someone else to communicate with. I'm not saying change providers at this point. I'm just find, suggesting finding somebody to talk to. And why do you have to have good communication for the reasons I just said? But also you want to know that you have the most accurate information as the treatment plan changes, as the disease changes, as you transition out of active treatment into survivorship, as you're now uh, on maintenance therapy 
all of those phases means that you have to understand and have good communication. So because of that, because you want to be a partner in the decisions that are made, communication is important. You want to be able to express depression. You want to be able to express the fatigue that's keeping you from functioning like you usually do. You want to express your uncertainty, and you want to be confident in knowing what it is that you do. So you have to be able to communicate and know what to do so. We suggest writing down the questions, taking notes during appointments, uh, we have physicians uh, in this community who recommend that family members or a friend come to take notes so that the uh, notes are taken. We have uh, patients in our practices who bring tape recorders so they can say, just for the instructions again, can I tape this so I can listen to it and hear what it was you really said. I think one should feel free to say, I don't understand. Could you go over that again? What I heard you saying was, and then if you still have questions, then ask where it is that you can get additional information that will support what it is that you heard. And so it's important, I think, also to get from our healthcare team what resources you should use, what websites, the American Cancer Society, um, the National Cancer Institute, what other agencies are important that will give you the information you need that you don't have to try to find it and hope that it is the correct information. So what are the trusted um, resources that are really needed? So those are some of the things for co communication. And then moving on creating the right plan, uh, as one goes through the cancer treatment, diagnosis and treatment, there are probably a number of care plans that have to be uh, developed, those at the point of diagnosis when one is trying to make up their mind for what the treatment is going to be, then during treatment, and then at each phase as one uh, reaches survivorship. So again, you need information and advice, and it's important that communication is a major portion of what the partners in care have so that you do understand the plans of care. And what you need to understand is what is it you're supposed to do, what is it you're supposed to expect three weeks from now, six weeks from now, 12 weeks from now, a year from now, three years, what more treatment lies ahead, how long will this treatment be important, what are the expectations when care is over, and the treatment is over for follow-up care. Who is the team member who's responsible for the follow-up care? What residual effects, new or late effects, might occur? Who's going to be responsible for coordinating your care at the different phases? Some phases it is a surgeon. Other phases it is a medical oncologist. Other phases a radiation oncologist. And then as treatment ends and one gets into the survivorship, the primary care specialist, the primary care provider may be uh, the one who is really coordinating the care. But it is important. The right plan of care means that at all times you know who it is that's coordinating the care and who is your first line to talk to and report to uh, if an issue comes up. And you have to know who the members of the team are. Is it a social worker? Is a social worker involved? Is there a nutritionist involved? Are the nurses? How often will you need to be seen? By whom for follow-up? And what is the frequency? 
I think everyone should have a written plan of care, and the plan of care may be uh, bullet points, and but it should include the drugs, and it should include any restriction in activity, it should recruit include anything as far as nutrition, it should include uh, follow-up, it should include expectations that you might have. I think a plan of care should also include what resources are needed. So for somebody who is still quite ill, it may be um, transportation, it may be home health care, it might be community agencies that are available. And you should know where to get those resources. And for those who go to comprehensive cancer centers, often the resources that you need to get through on a day-to-day -day basis are back in your home community. So you might need some guidance in finding out who the best people are in your home community. For us, it's a small community, so who are the best people uh, to, what are the best resources here, what ones are available if you're in a rural area, and how do you get access to them. And for yourself and your family members, it's important that you have some idea of what knowledge and skills you need um, as the, the disease and treatment changes. So what about the family member? What do you need to know about medications? What do you need to know about equipment? Um, what things will you expect to see? What are triggers that it means that you need to be seen sooner than maybe your scheduled appointment? Is there anything that you really should not do? Is rehabilitation a part of what should be in your plan of care? Uh, and is that written down? It's important that you know what records to keep, and so plan of care should outline what records are important to have handy so that should something occur, you know where your insurance records are, you know medical report dates, like if one has to go to an ER, they often ask what medications you ever received. And again, in a small town that might be a ways away from a comprehensive cancer center, it's important when you go to an emergency room that they know what cancer drugs you might have received when you received them and uh, to know what treatment plans are ahead and to know what the overall goals of care are. We try to encourage everybody to write something down and have something in their hand about what's to come ahead. And with the survivorship care plans that have been out there now for, at the point of discharge from active treatment, those often occur. But we also need to know about preventive practices and screening so that sort of winds up integrating, I think, both the communication and the openness that one must have between the healthcare team and that plan of care so that none of that is a mystery. And I think that ends where I am. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Given. Very comprehensive and lots of details and suggestions and tips for people to follow up on in terms of really coordinating their care and, and really, um, really having that right care plan. I, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And now we do have time for questions. We actually have lots of time for questions. And I'm going to ask Trinita to bring all of our speakers on board to answer your questions. Also, because of the size of our audience today, if we do not get to your question or you have a question tomorrow or another day, please don't hesitate to call Cancer Care. And I'll repeat the number again later on at 1-800-813-HOPE. 1-800-813-HOPE. And I'll say this again toward the end of the call. But let's try to take as many questions as we can right now. So I'm going to ask Janitha to go ahead and explain to you how to queue up for questions. And, and um, Janitha, let's have the questions begin. 
Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered, or if you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question is from Mary W. Your question, please. Thank you to the, all the doctors and the wonderful information. My question is, is there anything that's non-pharmaceutical to increase our white blood cell count and our hemoglobin? Well, th thank you for that question, Mary, and I'm going to ask Dr. Von Rowan. So I'm not aware of a specific, in, a specific supplement or complementary therapy that will do that. We know that um, adequate vitamins are essential, so a healthy, balanced diet is necessary. Um, but unfortunately, the side effects of chemotherapy that cause the decreased blood counts are predictable, and they recover at, a, at their own rate. They will recover for most people, but I don't know of another supplement that will take the place of the pharmaceuticals that are available. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Nanette S. Your question, please. Yes, hi. Good morning. Great, great info. Um, my question was for Dr. Anthony. Hopefully he's there to hear it. Um, he mentioned something about bone marrow protection. How can we do better bone marrow protection? Dr. Von Rowan? Well, right now what we have available for bone marrow protection are the pharmaceutical agents. So there are drugs that will stimulate the production of white blood cells and the outpouring of white blood cells, particularly neutrophils, which are a subset of white blood cells necessary to fight infection, put them into the bloodstream. And similarly, there is an agent to stimulate red cells, although which are the cells associated with anemia, although there are some concerns and some cancers about their impact on the cancer itself. There is one drug available for um, stimulating platelets, but it's used to a much lesser degree than the other two. What we really think about in terms of bone marrow suppression is to use uh, an agent if there's at least a 18 or 20% chance of having significant what we call neutropenia. And this would be where the white count would be less than around a the absolute neutrophil would be less than 1,000. So this would ex expose someone to a greater risk of of having uh, an infection uh, that would require antibiotics and, and hospitalization for a week to 10 days usually. So we would like to avoid that and use the drug uh, preemptively before it happens. But sometimes we have to do it reactively after we see someone who's had a severe uh, lowering of blood counts and complications and then use it in that setting. So it's something to be thinking about in terms of which drugs are being used and what uh, additional complications may be there, like whether prior radiation therapy has been given and other individual considerations. Excellent. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Adeline J. Your question, please. Hi. Hi, Dr. Mesna. And again, wonderful Hi. Hi. I have three questions, please. Okay. If you're being treated for other health problems while undergoing cancer treatment, are you at high risk for reoccurrence? Also, how far apart is um, it suggested for tamoxifen to be taken? For example, if I take it at 6 o'clock in the morning, am I supposed to take it at 6 o'clock in the morning all the time, or can I take it from between 6 and 10 a.m.? Okay. And can you repeat the first question again, please? I'm, I'm sorry. Um, 
Okay, that was a mouthful. Okay, if you're being treated for um, cancer, cancer treatment and um, other health problems, are you at higher risk for reincarnation? Okay, that's an excellent question. Okay, I'm going to ask Dr. Anthony to address your first question and Dr. Von Rowan to address your second question. Dr. Anthony, would you address the first question? The, the only way that a pre-existing condition could put you at higher occurrence is that if the full treatment dose could not be delivered, and it depends on the intent of the treatment. So if there's curative intent, uh, pre-existing uh, illness could potentially interfere uh, with effective treatment. So theoretically, yes, but in general, we would probably say no. Uh, for most people, we uh, will develop a specific care plan and that will incorporate the comorbidities. And if it's going to put someone at higher risk for recurrence, uh, that would be understood on the very beginning, on the very front end, to say what the limitations are. So, but in general, that's really not uh, a strong consideration. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And, and uh, Dr. Van Rohn, could you address the second question in terms of tamoxifen taking at the exact same time every day? Sure. No matter what the medication, whether it's an anti-cancer drug or a drug for hypertension, the goal is to keep your blood level of that drug fairly even across time. And the interval is determined by how the drug is cleared and absorbed. So the closer you can get to the same time, the better, but within a few hours is fine. And tamoxifen in particular, you're better off taking it five hours late than not taking it because there will be a longer period without the drug on board then. Okay, excellent. Okay. And um, our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Rebecca H. Your question, please. Um, about um, my doc, uh, my doc is about um, interferon. How does that work with um, giant cell tumor? Okay, and your specific question in terms of that? Um, well, they want to give the um, treatment to my daughter. She's going to be going in where they want to. She had a giant cell tumor in her knee, and they removed that, and now we're coming into two years later where she has it, where it manifests, I can't pronounce that word, manifests into the lungs. Okay. We're going to answer your question in a general way, and then we're going to very much suggest that you, of course, uh, discuss this in more detail with your um, treating healthcare team. I'm going to ask um, all of our speakers to just comment on the, um, the base, some of the issues here in terms of communication, but we really feel strongly that you definitely want to speak to your daughter's treating team because they, of course, know all of the details of her situation the best. Dr. Anthony, would you like to go first on this one? Yeah. Uh, in general, when we think about using uh, interferon for, for tumors, and specifically in giant cell, uh, we're looking at a mechanism of uh, inhibiting angiogenesis. So uh, would this put uh, your daughter at higher risk for complications? Uh, just from the way the drug may work, it may not, but side effects of the drug certainly need to be understood in advance. And I think specific questions you'll want to know is, is which regimen uh, they're going to be using. Uh, I suspect they'll be giving uh, your daughter the pegylated form of the drug, which is better tolerated than the initial forms that we were using when the drug was approved in the mid-'80s where we uh, dosed the, the product on a daily basis for a certain number of days. So the pegylated form uh, is, is certainly uh, well established in terms of uh, dosing and side effects, and I think if you uh, address those issues, you'll have a better understanding of uh, uh, what to expect in terms of side effects and responses. So I'll just leave it at that. 
Excellent. And Dr. Van Rowan? Well, I think as a parent, some of what you're asking is what to expect for your daughter, and I think it's important to be very specific about addressing those questions with the healthcare team. What can you expect in terms of side effects? What can you expect in terms of outcome? What is the time frame for each of those? What can you do to give her the best quality of life and survival with the therapy? And are there activities and other medications or supplements that she should or should not take? You want as much information as you can get from your team about what can make this go as well as possible. And my point would be just to emphasize what everybody has said, and this is now a new transition. This is a new phase in care. So it's important that you ask all the questions that you have now. Now is not the same as when she was first diagnosed, and that all the things that was talked about by Dr. Von Ron is really written down so that you understand what the expectations are and what the plan is. Excellent. Thank you. I hope that's very helpful to you. And our, our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Karen M. Your question, please. Oh, hello. This question is for Dr. Von Rohn. Um, I was curious, Dr. Von Rohn, when you were speaking about the pharmaceutical studies that were monitoring patient adherence to their therapies, did those studies include directed reductions in doses um, as to explain why some patients may not have been filling their uh, refills when they should have, um, or was that not part of the study? Because I was stunned to hear that so many people, I think it was on Gleevec, would have uh, the drop-off that they did. So what these studies are doing is looking at pharmacy records. So they don't always know until the next prescription comes in that the drug was reduced, but they do have that data because they're looking at the records. Some of these studies have as many as 4,000 patient records. So it's a fairly robust database, and it's surprising across the board to me as it is to you how many people don't consistently take their medication. And, you know, for some people, um, there is, of course, the issue of the cost of the medication. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say that we at Cancer Care do provide financial assistance, and many other organizations do as well. Cancer organizations do. But many people don't know that and don't know that they could get help with the cost of their medications. And so I think that's that can – there are many reasons, so that's not the only one. But I just wanted to mention that as one that people should be aware of if anyone's on the call and is having trouble affording their medications or the cost of their care or the transportation for their visits, they would want to take advantage of an organization like Cancer Care that offers financial assistance and has a copayment assistance program. And there are many other – we would link you to many others as well because it's important that that not be the reason that you not get, you know, the very best care for yourself. So, but it's a very it's a complicated area, and I, I think as Dr. Von Rowan said, everyone is surprised. But it is an issue that really is confronting um, healthcare today, particularly. So, thank you. Our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Tech CW. Your question, please. Only given uh, radiation and chemotherapy for invasive ductile carcinoma breast cancer. Now, I have met other women who are given tamoxifen. Should I be given tamoxifen? Just a question anybody can answer. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. And 
Dr. Farron just say a bit about that and how these decisions are made about treatments and how it's everyone gets people get different treatments based on tumor type, all the different areas that you can best address. Thank you. So for every tumor, the characteristics that are specific to the tumor and the general health of the person who has the tumor are taken into account. So in breast cancer, there are markers like estrogen receptor, which tells us whether or not the cancer changes its growth with changes in the hormone environment. And if the tumor has that marker, it tells us that a drug like tamoxifen or other hormonal therapies would provide benefit. But not every tumor carries those markers, and so the right question for your healthcare professional is to get them to explain what your pathology showed and what your markers on the pathology itself tell them about the best treatment for you. Excellent. Thank you. And I actually want to thank all of our speakers, really. Um, I have to say we've all been extraordinary. It's been really an extraordinary call. Um, it's been a topic that we're clearly going to offer again because there are so many questions that we see that you have about this topic. I want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked such really great questions. And I also want to thank all of you who've been listening to the call today. I want to remind everyone this is a one-hour program, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour program. And so with that in mind, I just want to review with you all the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So although the program itself, the workshop itself, will be ending soon, there are so many services that you can access that will continue endlessly for you. Now, Cancer Care is a 67-year-old organization, and it's staffed by 50 master's level trained oncology social workers. And we are here to provide a host of services to you. As I mentioned before, we offer practical financial assistance as well, and we also have a co-payment um, assistance program. We also offer counseling services, which is a chance to talk with someone about some of the concerns or questions you may have. Some of you ask questions that perhaps are, you'd like to continue that dialogue. You have concerns about talking with your healthcare team or, or concerns about a family member or how, how you yourself can talk to your um, to in terms of the workplace, how you can continue working while you're undergoing cancer treatments. Or you may be a caregiver on the call. So we, we, we talk to people about their concerns. We also offer support groups on the telephone and online. And we also have many publications and fact sheets, as well as, of course, these Connect Education workshops. Most importantly, of course, we don't want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with cancer. We want you to feel that you are now part of a community of support and that we are here for you and that, indeed, we are simply a telephone call away. And you can call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Our website is www.cancercare.org. And, again, our telephone number is 1-800-813-HOPE. And we very much appreciate your participating today on the program. Remember, we're very close by. Do give us a call to access our free services, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all for participating. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.